looks like we're leaning over a little this side of the church today. <laughs> but it's good to see everyone. Last week, we started a look at the book of Hebrews, and I mentioned that Hebrews is the favorite of many, many believers because usually uh, it has a more particular way of showing the superiority of Jesus Christ. We, we sang, precious, precious is Jesus. Um, but a lot of times it's hard to see that precious, that gloriousness of Jesus because we live in this fallen world, we're, we're living in this fallen flesh, and, it, and it's a spiritual reality that won't be manifest for all to see clearly until he returns. So we have to look into, study, and, and build up our faith so that we can have eyes of understanding open, spiritual eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And so Hebrews, I mean, every book of the Bible, you can find something of Jesus in every page, but Hebrews just does it so much better and stronger in many ways. And so that's why a lot of people say, I love the book of Hebrews, and I'm one of them that say that. And uh, we were talking last week how it was written for those who were possibly losing heart because there were pressures to go back to the old Jewish tradition. They were undergoing persecution, troubles, and things like that. And it's so easy to go with the flow. You know, your life would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it be, if you just went with the flow of everything? But, but Jesus is not one that goes with the flow. When he appeared on the scene, he was radical, capital R in capital A-D-I-C-A-L. He was radical, and especially to the Jewish tradition. That's why the Pharisees got so upset, and that's why the, the Hebrew Christians were starting to wonder and have questions. And he's radical today. You know, many of you who have grown up in church and come to church regularly, uh, it can become familiar. We know something of Jesus now. We know uh, what the Lord has done through the cross, through the resurrection, but it's still a radical thing to follow Christ. And Jesus is very radical in the eyes of the world. And they can't handle it. And so they don't know what to do. They, they turn or they mock or they insult or they, they can't understand. And that's what was happening in the Jewish tradition. The Pharisees couldn't understand. And, and people who were believing in Christ were becoming excommunicated from the synagogue, was a, which was a great communal center in the community in that day. And so there was a price to pay for going with this radical one, and they were starting to question things, perhaps. And I want to say a thing about questioning. We talk about faith, and we talk about victory, and there is victory. When you can believe and stand on the promises and go forward in the things of God, it's awesome. But in reality, sometimes we have to fight for the victory, fight the good fight of faith, and sometimes we have questions. Has anybody else in here had questions about what's going on? What, you know, what's happening here? Why, I thought it was supposed to be this way, and it's turning out this way. And, and, you know, it's okay to have questions. I think there's something significant about the walk of faith. It would be strange if you didn't have questions. And sometimes I believe that your faith is even more victorious when you persevere through the questions. So you don't have to feel second-rate, second-class, my faith is so weak when you're having questions. You can, you can understand that questions are a part of our life as long as we're in this flesh. 
and that we do walk by faith and not by sight, and questioning is very normal. And so it's not, you know, you can't say, oh, I'm a Christian, I, I can't have any problems, I can't have any questions. No, you can. There's plenty to question. But your faith is being commended while you do that, while you stick true and faithful to the Lord. And I believe the Lord will always recompense you, will always bless you after a time of persevering and saying, I still love you, I still trust you, even though I have questions. So Paul, I said Paul, the author of Hebrews, which I believe was Paul, but that's a scholarly debate that we're not going to get into. And if I slip up, just have grace for me if you don't think it was Paul, but I may at times say Paul said this. But the author of Hebrews was trying to encourage the believers here by showing them the superiority of Jesus. And so in chapter 1, he's talking about how Jesus was the way God has spoken in the last days. If you want to know what God is saying, he spoke through the prophets. He spoke in various different ways. But in the last days, the time of the cross up until the end, he has spoken through his son. If you want to know who God is, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the one we learn the most. The heart of God, God's love, how God feels about us. You can get caught up in the Old Testament and have questions again, saying, why did God do this? And it, what's, what's happening here? And there are questions, but the ultimate expression of who God is is always to come through the Son, Jesus. And so the author is encouraging them to say, look, this is the one he came and died for you. He's not only superior to the prophets, but he's superior to the angels. And we talked about how there's angels, and we live in a spiritual world. It's not just a material world. That's what a lot of people out there don't understand. There is all kinds of spiritual influences that are directing hearts and leading people in the wrong direction. And we have to understand there are angels, too, that have been sent as ministers that minister to us. That can give us encouragement and hope. But we also have to be aware that there are demonic influences. And Ephesians 6 talks about principalities and powers. So you get frustrated with the corruption of the politicians and the nations in the world. But they're being directed by principalities and powers. This is a spiritual battleground, the world. And yet, in chapter 1, Jesus is lifted up as superior to all of that. He's superior to the angels, and he's superior to the kingdoms of this world. It talks about um, he has a throne. To which of the angels did the Lord say, sit at my right hand? And then we talk about also, but he also says that to believers, that we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So all of the beginning of chapter 1 was to show and lift up Jesus as Lord and Lord above all. That's how I would sum up chapter 1. So today, going into chapter 2, uh, we, we take the good news even further. It's good news that Jesus is Lord because his kingdom will never end and he'll never do anything wrong or corrupt and we have an inheritance, joint heirs with him. It's good news. Uh, chapter 2, the news gets even better because it presents Jesus as a Lord who is Savior, a Savior, and a brother. And we're going to consider what that means as we look into it. But basically, to begin with, the Lord, the Lord of all, above, superior to angels, superior to prophets, to all things in heaven and earth, he entered the ring. He came to dwell among us and to give his life as a sacrifice to us. So in chapter 2, we start with verse 1. 
It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And I like the saying, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to look and see what it's there for. It's there for a reason, because he's, he's coming off of what he has just spoken. So he's just talked about Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater than angels, and he has a kingdom and all that. Therefore, because he is greater and he is superior, therefore, you need to give heed, more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. And this is something that is very important. A lot of people hear, but they do not heed. There's a difference between hearing and heeding. Are you hearing me? Are you heeding me? <laughs> well, what does that mean? Well, when I was teaching in China, I taught English to Chinese students. And, you know, a lot of them would get the lectures, they'd read, they'd learn the vocabulary and things like that. They were hearing it, and they could maybe understand it, but they weren't taking it and running with it. They weren't practicing it. And I, I would say, you know, if you want to get better at English, you need to practice it. Go out and talk to some foreigners and things like that. They say, oh, I'm just too afraid, or I'm going to make a mistake and things like that. Well, yeah, you're going to make mistakes, but unless you run with what you're hearing, it's not going to become more mainstream in your life. It's not going to become natural to you. It's not going to become something, a power that you have that you can wield when you need to wield it. And the same thing comes spiritually. You can hear lots of good things, but you have to take it and run with it. You have to first do more than hear. You have to be heeding it while you're hearing. One of the classes I, I taught in China was a special group of students they put me in with, and uh, they were called the TV class because they didn't have live teachers. They had TVs. It was an experiment. This was back before the Internet and streaming and things like that. And they sat this class. I think it was a remedial class of some sort, and it was just they were just getting TV instruction. And they wanted to bring me in to do a special experiment, see how it would go with teaching them some English. And I'll tell you what, it, this was a strange group because whenever I walked into a Chinese classroom, normally all the Chinese students would just giggle, there's the foreigner, and then sometimes they'd even applaud. If you want to feel special, go teach English in China. The students will love you and make you feel special. But this group was different. I'd walk in there and crickets. It's like, well, where's the uh, welcome? <laughs> and so I come in with my big goofy smile. Hey, how you doing? And they're all just sitting there like this. I thought, what in the world? They were so passive. So my challenge, I think they were passive because all they were doing was watching TV. They were never having any participation in their classes or being challenged for anything to speak up or things like that. So I thought, how am I going to get these guys speaking? They're not even saying hi when I say hi back. So I, I thought, well, I'll talk about something that's interesting to them. And I said, how many of you like sports? And they all just sit there. I thought, oh, nobody must like sports in this group. Okay, how many of you don't like sports? And they all just sat there. I thought, this is going to be a tough group. And it, it turned out to be, I, I don't even remember. That was so long ago, but one of the ways I tried to motivate them is I tried to just tell them, hey, look, you've got more. You can be an example to others. You, can, you guys, anyway. Uh, the point was they were so passive and they didn't respond, they didn't heed what they heard, 
to, you've got to take the ball and run with it. And that is very important for learning English, but much more important for what you hear in church, what you read in your quiet times, what you're listening to, preaching on, whatever. If you're hearing something that's in line with the word, that's truth, that's going to help build your faith, you've got to practice it and run with it. In Hebrews chapter, oh, by the way, how many of you in here like sports? All right, somebody's awake. Anybody not like sports in here? <laughs> okay. okay, good. Most of you are awake, but some of you are still being quite passive. And you need to hear it. And, it, and, and what I'm saying here, too, is, is not just how you listen. The author said, take heed to what we have heard. What have you heard in the past? It means don't forget what you've heard. Pay attention to it. Go back to it and run with it. And he's going to give some more reason here in verse 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So, the word spoken proved steadfast. Every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. A just reward. When he says a just reward here, he's not talking about a reward like, congratulations, you won the competition, here's your reward. No, this is speaking about judgment. In the Old Testament, the angels would come, the prophets would come, and they would preach, this is what's going to happen if you disobey. This is what's going to happen if you don't follow the Lord. And then they would disobey, follow the world, Lord, or they would disobey and not follow the Lord. And every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. What God said would happen did happen. And there was judgment. There was justice. And we are looking at a Savior here. It's going to be talking about so great a salvation that he came, went to death on the cross, and fulfilled the justice, the judgment of God on our behalf that we would not receive that just reward, that we would not receive what we deserve. And if anyone thinks, well, I don't deserve any punishment, you haven't really considered yourself. We all, I think we all probably, the problem is we think way too heavily down upon ourselves. But God has done something for that, that we don't have to be weighed down upon ourselves because Jesus took what was weighing ourselves down, what weighs ourselves down, and he died on the cross with it, that we could be free and that God could justly justify us and righteously have relationship with us. You know, I was praying, I was thinking, Lord, I just had that awful thought, and how can you still abide with me? How can you still be with And it was like, because I paid for this time with you, and I, I've satisfied that awful thought you had, and I can justly be just and righteously be righteous with you because of what Jesus did, taking care of that problem on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And justice, justice will happen. There is a just reward coming for all that you see going on out there in our day. Can I get a witness? I was talking to a guy, uh, you know, our car was having a problem. I had to get it repaired and becoming friends with the guy at the mechanic shop. And he was just going on and on about all the corrupt things these politicians are getting away with. And 
and, and man, there's so many people that should be in jail and they're not in jail. And, and how can this be? Everybody knows about this, but yet nothing's being done. And I'm trying to think, what am I going to say to him? You know, he's not a believer, but I, we're talking about the Lord. I'm trying to win him over to the Lord. And, I, and I'm saying, what can help him at this time? You know, just trust Jesus. Well, you know, yes, but that's not going to help. You can't just say, well, just trust Jesus. But I finally, you know, got something to share with him. I said, yeah, there is no true justice in this world. We, we are seeing so little, if any, true justice. But that doesn't mean that true justice is not coming. There is a time coming where God's word will be proved and there will be a just reward. And true justice is coming. These things that politicians and others get away with is only temporary. I told him this is just temporary. It's not going to be this way always. There is true justice coming. And that brings us into a place of hope. We can, we can, we can be hopeful. But the, what he's talking about here is judgment. And so he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So here is the point. There is something to escape. The word escape. You ever think of, of some great movie where the, the heroes are in trouble, but somehow they manage to escape? Or somebody's in trouble, and there's someone that comes in, there's an awesome rescue. And that was close. Well, this is what Jesus did. He gave us so great a salvation. We need to think of it in terms of rescue. And it is, it is better than any exciting scene in a movie if you consider that we were on our way to a just reward. We were on our way to justice. And the Lord came and rescued, pulled us up out of a dire situation, out of a place where we had no way of helping ourselves. He came. He did it. He even confounded the enemy, used the enemy's own tactics against him, the cross. The cross was a devilish tool. The cross was Satan's work, and yet God came in all the wisdom and outwitting the devil using his own work to do something to rescue us in so great a salvation. We have escaped the justice that is coming. We can look forward to the justice that is coming because God will be vindicated and we will be redeemed. We're forgiven. We would, in, in our natural state, be subject to that justice that is coming, but it is so great a salvation we have no part in that judgment. We will be blessed and forgiven and taken into the glory, even rule and reign with Christ, which is part of so great a salvation. And it's so great because he rescued us from great wrath, from hell, from judgment, from sin, but not just rescued us from, but he rescued us to. He rescued us to a kingdom that's not going to have any corruption he rescued us to a place in the kingdom where we're going to rule and reign with Christ. He rescued us to a place where we can experience his love in powerful ways, powerful measures now. We can experience his authority in our life now. We can experience his redemption. He can turn our failures into something new. He can turn our mess into a message. He can, he can redeem our mistakes. He can make things that were bad. He can... He can pull something good out of them. He's rescued us from the fate of being locked into, I'm only me, I'm only human, I'm part of this world, and we're all doomed. He's rescued us from that and to the glory of Jesus. 
joint heirs with Christ and a place in the kingdom that's going to be eternally exceptional. And it says, how, will, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word neglect doesn't mean reject. It means to be indifferent to and to not pay attention to. So a lot of times uh, we neglect so great a salvation. We, we, don't, uh, we don't consider our position in Christ. We consider we're, we're tending more to how am I going to get out of this fix? How am I going to get out of this problem? And your issues, your problems are important. You need to tend to them. But we need to learn to not neglect so great a salvation because salvation isn't just for the end. You're going to be rescued, and in the end, when Jesus returns, you're going to heaven. Salvation is for now. In fact, the word used for save in many in places, well, wherever it talks about being saved in the Bible, the word for that is sozo. It means deliverance, but it also means health, wellness, wholeness, uh, uh, prosperity, it means everything in Christ that you are in him and not in the way of the world, that he has strength for you, love for you, power for you. There's something now. It's not just when he returns, but we neglect so great a salvation. We don't experience that because we're too caught up and distracted with everything else. So what's the opposite of neglect? He said it in uh, verse, verse 1, earnest heed. So we go back to the earnest heed. He said, give the more earnest heed, full attention. That's the opposite of neglect. When you don't give that full attention, it says, lest we drift away. You might be drifting away. Sometimes you can be drifting and not even know that you're floating away because you're dealing with everything else, neglecting so great a salvation. Give the more earnest heed. And you say, hey, wait a second. I'm, you know, people don't fall overnight. You hear about Christians falling and scandals and things like that. They don't just wake up and say, oops, today I fell. You know, they've been drifting away for some time. They've been, they've been falling away, and, and they've not, maybe they, they didn't mean that. Maybe it, it wasn't intentional, but they're not giving earnest heed to their what they have in Christ, who they are in Christ, what he's done, how he's still present. But I don't feel it. No, I'm, I'm just believing because the word tells me he's present. That's giving earnest heed and not neglecting. And we think of the price Jesus paid for us so that we could have so great a salvation. And in Hebrews 2, 4, it says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How can you neglect the salvation that God has spoken and proved and he bore witness with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will? And that is an exciting verse if you'll open your hearts to receive it because God is a God of signs and wonders. We're living in a day of unbelief where we don't see so many signs and wonders because we're not even looking for them or expecting them. We need to expect signs and wonders, various miracles. There are theologians that will tell you that God doesn't do miracles anymore, at least not miracles that we can't explain. We can, we can accept some things, like if it, it just happens without much you know, pizzazz. Now, God never stopped doing miracles, and he confirmed through Jesus. This confirmed that Jesus was not just some ordinary teacher or prophet that came on the scene. 
Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, and he, he gave signs and wonders. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And then he gave that commission to the apostles and his disciples. He said, now you go heal the sick and raise the dead. And they went out, and the book of Acts is a story of their confirming the message with signs and wonders. And they needed signs and wonders to confirm the message. And Paul said, I didn't come preaching winning you over with wise and eloquent words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and power. And so Paul needed the demonstration of the Spirit and power. The apostles needed the confirmation of signs and wonders. What makes us think we don't need them? You know, we're witnessing to people, and, and you know, what are they, what's going to show the confirmation of our message? Well, one way we can be in an active place is to be reflecting the character of God in our lives, that's a sign, that's a wonder. But what about gifts of the Holy Spirit? And we're, we're not studying the book of 1 Corinthians, but if we got to chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, we'd have to talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, Paul said to pursue love and earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially that you might prophesy. And there's a whole church world out there that's pursuing love, but they forget the second part of that. They're not desiring spiritual gifts. Well, I don't want any of that spooky stuff. <laughs> it's not spooky. If the Holy Spirit's in on it, it glorifies Jesus, and it, it reveals uh, God to people. That's what he gave the Spirit for. The gifts of the Spirit was to edify the church and to be a sign for unbelievers and things like that. So... How are we going to get to that place where we're seeing signs and wonders and God confirming his word in that way? We have to be more than just open. We have to expect, desire, pray for, and put ourselves in position to receive. And one, is, one of the first steps is pursue. Pursue love. Desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. It's what the word teaches. Verse 5. Well, let, before we go to verse 5, what I've just shared with you is, is a section in Hebrews chapter 2 that described the rescue. Jesus came, he rescued us, and it's talking about don't neglect this rescue. You are rescued. There is rescue if you're not. There's rescue in him, but Jesus is our rescue. The next section of Hebrews goes on to show what else is included in so great a salvation. More than just rescue there is restoration. And we see this starting in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. It's not in subjection to angels. And what's the world to come? The world to come is the place of salvation now and all it's leading to when Jesus is returning. And he is giving us the message of his salvation. He didn't trust the angels with the message of salvation. He trusted you and me. He trusted. He gave it to mankind. There's an example in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a Gentile soldier, and he was praying and giving alms, and the angel appeared to him and said, God has heard your prayers, and he's aware of your almsgiving. And right there, that can refute some people who say God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. God hears the, if God didn't hear the prayers of sinners then how can anyone be saved? You have to pray to, to come to the Lord. Well, then he only hears that prayer. No, God hears people. He heard Cornelius, and an angel said, your prayers have come before the Lord, 
your almsgiving has come before the Lord, send for Peter. He'll tell you what to do. Isn't that interesting? Because why didn't the angels just tell him, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. But the angels didn't have a part in this matter. This is divine government. This is divine order. This is God's heavenly ambassadorship given to you and me, given to Peter and not the angel. And we talked last week, how the angels are mighty. They are, they are incredible beings. They are not the little cute little things. There may be some cherubim, seraphim, kind of stuff like that. But normally, they invoked fear and dread. They always had to appear and say, don't be afraid. Angels and the mighty angels and yet God has given it to someone lower than angels. He's given it to Peter to share the gospel. He's given it to you and me to share what Jesus has done. Why? Because Jesus came for us, not for the angels. It's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a humankind thing. Within, we're tied to the Lord in a special way that the angels aren't. And in 1 Peter, he even talks about, uh, 1 Peter 1.12, he talks about how the angels desire to look into these things. They're in awe of what God has done through Jesus for mankind. And so verse 2 through um, chapter 2, 6 through 8, it says, But one testified in a certain place, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is a passage taken from the book of Psalms, Psalms 8, 4 to 6. And it's an incredible passage because it speaks in different ways. It is prophetic of what Jesus has done, what God has done for us as humanity. And it also speaks messianically of how, G how God accomplished it. He accomplished it not through angels. He accomplished it through a man. But what is man? What is man? Like I said, the angels were fierce, mighty forms, and yet God paid attention to the lower ones, the lower ones. That ought to put a price value on every person. You never think that you're not special to God. Even if you've blown it, messed up, how much wrong you've built up in your life, it was when you were wrong that Jesus saw the value and came and said, it was mindful of you and paid the price. What is man? Why? You know, this is a question we could ask him. And it's also in this passage from Psalm 8, it's talking about how he put man over all his works, over all things. So part of so great a salvation is not just rescuing you personally, but he also saved the mandate that he originally gave to humankind through Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the creation. So in the beginning, before the curse, we were given a mandate through the first human beings to have dominion over the earth. And what does the book lead up to as it prophesies through Revelation? In the end, we will have dominion over all the earth. And Jesus has restored that dominion through so great a salvation. He has given us a place in the ruling and reigning with him. He's, he's restored the proper order. It begins now. The earth is still in restoration process, but it is happening now and will culminate at the return of Christ. 
Look at Romans 8, 19 to 22, what that says about this. For the earnest expectation of the creation, that's earth, eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered, rescued, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until together until now. And in these last days, I can imagine the whole, all creation is groaning and laboring all the more. And I think before you give birth, that's when it gets the worst, right? It, it, you know, I don't know. I'm asking the women, obviously. Um, but it gets the worst. And right now is a time that I just understand creation is groaning. And we're groaning. But when, we're, when it's revealed, everything, they're looking with expectation. It's, it's speaking metaphorically, figuratively, I guess. Creation is expecting, waiting for the manifestation of the children of God, which is what we are. Are we expecting that? Do we see the hope in that? This is what is included in so great a salvation. He has restored the mandate originally given to Adam and Eve. He's restored it in us. We have authority on this earth, and that ought to affect our prayer lives. When we pray, oh, please, please do this. No, let's start saying, Lord, your word says this, and as your ambassador, I'm asking you to, to see this through. This is the word. And now you can start praying with, now I command the enemy to get off of this loved one. I command the enemy off of this situation. We have, we have some authority. We are going, we are in training for reigning, as I've said before. We are getting into a position. So part of so great a salvation is you are rescued from, but you are also rescued to a position of high, high places. And it wasn't to angels that he gave that. Why would he give it to a lower form? And how did he do it? This is where the messianic look at Psalm 8 comes together. He didn't give the assignment to an angel to accomplish this, to bring us back to restore this order. But what is man that you are mindful of? Why did you choose man to, to do this? You know, in chapter 1, we said angels are ministers of God, but the superiority of Jesus is that he's a son. And only a son could accomplish the work. Ministers, they minister to the heirs of salvation, but the son could accomplish the work. And in verse 8, he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. It's a done deal. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, it says, he has put all things under his feet. Speaking of Jesus, all things are under his feet. Do you see it now? We're getting to that. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 27 says, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's the justice that's coming. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. And now, here's the, here's the real fun part. Romans 13, no, Romans 16, verse 20 says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This is talking about us. We just heard how everything was put under subjection to what is man, and it was under Jesus' feet. But as you align yourself with Jesus, God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Again, putting you back into this ruling and reigning with him. But it's not just when he returns. What are you dealing with now? 
don't neglect so great a salvation. Your enemy's going to be crushed under your feet shortly. If you look back on your life, I've looked back on my life and see how many times I've been affected by the enemy, but God crushed them under my feet. I didn't realize I was stomping on them at times. But you can be when you get that in your head and you take the word at its value and, and pray that way and understand you have hope. You don't, you know, not everything works out in life, but a lot does. And whatever doesn't work out will work out when the true justice appears. And so now and not yet, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places now spiritually, but also not yet. We will have our reign when he returns. And now he is crushing Satan under your feet. Now. May not seem that way, but you got to see it spiritually. And I think when you can see it spiritually, that opens the gate for it to come out in the natural more. That's how faith works, I believe. But that happens now and not yet. So in uh, verse 9, back to Hebrews 2, we don't see all things put under him at the moment, but we see Jesus. That's a key phrase, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So if you don't see everything under his subjection right now, you still look at everything through the filter of Jesus. We see Jesus. And, and this is talking about Jesus in his humiliation. He, it said he was made a little lower than angels. We look at him and say, he's made a little lower than angels. He came, was obedient, and humbled himself to death. He came into our world and became like us so that he could bring us into his world and we become like him. All through the humiliation and the death on the cross. He was made lower than angels. He won the high and glory. He could have appeared and shined brightly, but he came in humiliation. That's what we see right now. And that's where the glory is. When he was born on that Christmas Eve night, the angel said, glory to God in the highest. Or glory to God in the highest glory. How can that be high glory? You know, it's his humiliation. Well, as we said last week, what goes down must come up. When you humble yourself, when he humbled himself, he suffered death. He who suffered death was crowned with glory and honor. And it's humbling for the Hebrew Christians to be going through what they're going through and not have the esteem of the synagogues or the Pharisees or the traditionalists. And it's, it's humbling for us to be mocked by the world and not understood because people don't have a clue as to what we're talking about spiritually. But as we go down, the Lord lifts up. And what we have gone down for is glory and honor that when he appears, we shall be like him as he is. And that glory and honor is even now and not yet. In Hebrews chapter, or in Romans chapter 8, the last verse speaks about you were called, justified, glorified. It's a past tense thing. Can you see it spiritually? You've been glorified with him. Humble yourself now, and he will lift you. If it, without the death, there's not a resurrection. And this is the mystery of God, that God became lower than the angels, and we see him. We don't see all things as it should be. Not everything's under his feet right now. So what do we see? We see him. And when it says we see him, you know what it's saying? Give earnest heed. Seeing. It's an active seeing. We give earnest heed. Look for him in your situation. Remember him 
in your situation. Put him in your situation. See him. It's, it's going back to the theme of giving earnest heed. Um, and that's the restoration. That's the order. So we've talked about rescue and restoration. If you'll bear with me, there's one more piece to the great salvation. So great a salvation. It's not just great salvation. It's so great. You've got rescue. You've got restoration. But it doesn't come without reconciliation and so the rest of the chapter talks about how he reconciled us Hebrews 2.10 for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering it was fitting for him to become lower than the angels and to suffer to bring many to glory and he didn't just he brings many to glory he died and tasted death for all. This is what it said in Hebrews 2, 9. For all, worthy and unworthy, everyone can have a piece of the pie. Everyone can put their faith and trust in Jesus because his death accomplished it for everyone. But not everyone does. And so here it says he's bringing many who have followed him, the captain of their salvation. Captain's a military term. reminds us that we are in a battlefield this earth, this time, and Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. What does that mean? Was he not perfect before he suffered? Yes, he was. He was the perfect one. He was God manifested in the flesh. What that means is that the office of Savior was perfected. He had to be humbled. He had to go to death. That was the perfection through his suffering. He was, he was totally fit to be the high priest, which we're going to talk about in a second, to do it all, something angels couldn't do. But it had to come through suffering. He was already the perfect one, but this perfected him for the office, the position of Savior. I hope that's clear. Maybe you'll tell me if it wasn't. Um, and then in verse 10, um, no, verse 11, go to verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And here's another miracle of so great a salvation. Rescue, restoration, reconciliation. All of one. All of one. This is a miracle of our salvation. A lot of people don't focus on this. They focus on getting saved. You're going to be saved so your sins are forgiven and you'll go to heaven. That's good news. That's great salvation. But it's much more, you become a new creation. You become all of one. Not, it says, he who sanctifies, that's God. And we who are being sanctified, we are one. We are made partakers of the divine nature. You're not just saved, but you're brought into the family of God in which you are called brethren. Brethren's an old English word that means brothers. It includes sisters. Brothers and sisters, you are family. You are one. We are as they say in Mississippi, kin. That's kin folk. Do they say that in Tennessee? I don't know. But we're kin. What does that mean to be kin? It means we are sharing the nature of the Lord. How can that be? What is man that you are mindful of him? God has put his very nature in us, made us one. You are one spirit with Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. That is an incredible thing to put in your, your uh, files and to process, to give earnest heed to. 
to understand that you're not ordinary you. You're not just, I'm only human. I'm one with him. The divine, I'm a partaker of the divine nature. This is so great a salvation. It, it's just when you give earnest heed and find out all that is in Christ, you become astounded. And, and so many are indifferent to it. They neglect it. And that doesn't mean you're, they're going to be unsaved or something, but it, what it does mean is they, they won't be alert to it. They can't experience the way they could. Their faith won't be built up as it could by giving earnest heed and attention to it. But he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Not ashamed. I'm ashamed of you. Not ashamed to call us brethren. We who put him on the cross, we who disappoint him, fail him all the time, not ashamed of us, not ashamed. It says he's going to present us with great joy before the Father in the book of Jude. He's not ashamed, not ashamed to call us brethren. That is great love, great patience, great understanding. The Lord knows that we're of the dust. I think that's how he has such patience with us. But, you know, we, we find it easy to snub people all the time, whether we want to admit it or not. We look down on, on people, and that's, not, that's just human nature. Someone stinks, you don't want to be around them. You don't want to bring them home and say, look, this is my best friend, but that's basically what Jesus does with us. Only we're not stinking at that point. He has made us one. He is cleansing us, shaping us up, changing us, and he's saying, this is my, this is my kin. This is my kin. Not ashamed. And uh, verse 12, where he quotes in Psalm 22. This is a quote from 22. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Here he's talking about, I will declare your name, the Father's name, to my brethren. He's calling us brethren in, even in this prophetic psalm. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm of Jesus dying on the cross. It's where you get, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes through, you know, what Jesus experienced on the cross. That's how he declared who the Lord is to us through the cross. His love for us, his value for us, paying the price for us. And it says, I will declare you to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. So there's a sweet little spot in this verse here that talks about he's not just not ashamed to call us brethren, but the calling of us brethren is linked to the outflow of worship. I will sing praise to you. It's like the brethren aspect of it brings out the praise. God has a heart of singing praise because of the bringing us in to relationship with him. Verse 13, again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. And this is a quote, uh, the children part from Isaiah 8, verse 18. I don't know if I gave, yeah, I gave that. Here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So here I am, and the children you have given me, again, it's like it's a, it's a happy thing. Here I am, he, these are the children you've given me. It's like it was worth it to go through this for them, and we are for signs and wonders. Again, I said, if you put your faith in Christ, you are a sign and wonder. 
and you are for signs and wonders. And we are signs and wonders. A lot of people wonder. That's a wonder. I'm wondering how can anything good. No, it's we are signs and wonders, ambassadors of the Lord. That's our role. That's our purpose as we live out our days here. We are to be signs and wonders so that the nations would know the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And the prophecies throughout the Old Testament talk about the nations coming to that mountain to worship the Lord. We are signposts of that. And we need signs and wonders. Again, we need to be the sign and wonder, and we need to desire those signs and wonders. As they prayed in Acts chapter 4, Lord, you know, show them. Give us boldness to speak and signs and wonders. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, we're about done. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So he reconciled us in the reconciliation. We have no fear of death. He destroyed the power of death. A lot of people are afraid to die. I don't know if you're afraid to die, but if you know the Lord, you don't need to be afraid to die. He destroyed the power of death. Death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? We know that death isn't the end. It's a transition. It's, oh, man, I get to go see Jesus now. The doctor tells you you're going to die, and you're like, oh, no, no, no. You got As Andrew Wami says, you got to kiss the doctor and say, thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go see Jesus. There's no fear of death because of what Jesus has done, the reconciliation. We don't have to fear that just recompense of reward. We can go into the arms of love, feeling clean and holy. Well, I got to get more things right. No, Jesus got it right. You are clean and holy. That's one with God. You are being sanctified. That's the outworking of it. But you are, in your core, spiritually speaking, in Christ, clean and holy. And you can go with eager anticipation to see him. I was on a plane in the Philippines, and we were going from Manila to a place called Bacolod. And the storm came, hit the plane, and I've never experienced such shaking and bouncing, lightning hitting all around us. And there were people in panic on the plane. They were just in a panic. And I was, you know, I won't lie and say, oh, I was just happy, but I was a lot calmer because <laughs> I knew, hey, you know, if this goes down, the only thing I'll be sad is not leaving my family behind. But, you know, other than that, hey, <laughs> if it's time to go, it's time to go. And I was just thankful to the Lord. I don't have to be in a panic like this. And I had two friends, two ministers, and one, uh, one was a Baptist and one was Assemblies of God. And if you know anything about Assemblies of God, they teach, or they used to teach, that you can lose your salvation. And they were on a flight together, and they had a similar experience. And I heard the story of the Baptist guy was just laughing because he was sitting there just kind of smiling, thanking the Lord during it all. And his friend next to him, the AOG guy, he was just trying to confess all his sins and getting everything out at the last minute. I got to confess, I got to get everything right with the Lord. You can't do that. You don't have to do that because you'll never get it all out. And, and it doesn't, doesn't make any sense to do that because Jesus has already taken care of that. You can go in. There's no fear. The power of death has been broken. And we can go in peace and anticipation and excitement because we're going to be with the Lord. And that's when everything will come into fruition that we've been anticipating and experiencing here only in bits and pieces for now.
too many hallelujahs. Just got to wait for when you stop. Okay. All right, last verses, 16 to 18. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Seed of Abraham being us, mankind through faith. And again, he by, why did he bypass the angels? He came for us. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like us, like his brethren, and he, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. All right, a lot of language there. Propitiation means appeasement. He appeased the Lord. This is the first mention of he was a faithful, merciful and faithful high priest. When we talk about a high priest, you, we're not talking the religious thing that you get in your mind, somebody with a collar on or a robe and walking around saying, bless you, my child, bless you, my child, and oh, my son, tell me your confession. This isn't what we're talking about. And the high priest was the go-between person in Israel. The high priest is the intercessor for the people. He is the uh, go-between. He brings the people together with God. And Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. There were some high priests that would manipulate and try to control the people and try to have power over the people. This is saying he's merciful and faithful. He's not wanting you to appease him. He's appeasing God for you. He was to make propitiation and appeasement for the sin. Sin had to be appeased. God is holy. God is just. And how can God have a relationship with that which is not holy and just? There has to be some appeasement. And Jesus appeased on our behalf. And that's how God can be holy and just and be one with us and be us be one with him. And it couldn't be an angel that accomplished it. It had to be him because he had to represent man. It couldn't be God did it just as himself. Why people say, why can't God just forgive and do this? God couldn't be a representative of mankind if he didn't have his own experience and being the you know, Adam was a representative of mankind and everyone was guilty. There had to be a representative of mankind. God, just as God alone, was too high and above, could not experience and be a representative for man. So in the wisdom of God, he manifests himself in the flesh. Jesus, the word, became flesh, dwelt among us, and he was able to do it. If Jesus was just a man and not God, he couldn't atone or he couldn't make appeasement for everyone else because he wouldn't be able to appease everything for his own. He had to have the divine. He had to be God, to be perfect. He was the only perfect one that ever walked. And he had to be God in order for that. So he couldn't just be a man. He couldn't be an angel and atone for us because angels aren't in the form of man. They can't be our representative. So God, man, the divine Jesus suffered, and that perfected him for his office as savior and not only that because he suffered he is able to relate with you and me and understand what we suffer he's able to be close to us a brother a brother to us he's not just a savior he's not just lord he's not just savior but he's brother and he understands he knows your pain he knows what you go through he's been through that himself through the cross 
so he's able to help us. And he's able to help us as a caring, merciful, and faithful high priest. It's so good. That is our Jesus. That is our Lord. He's Lord, Savior, and brother. So great a salvation has brought us rescue, has restored our mandate, restoration, and has reconciled us that we might be able to be one with God because of what Jesus suffered for us. So are you giving earnest heed to these things? Will you give earnest heed to these things? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Savior? And do you relate with him as brother? All of these. Are you one with him? You can be. That's the good news of so great a salvation. He tasted death for everyone. And the question is, will you receive him and taste and see that God is good? You don't have to answer that. You can think about it on your way out. But if anyone needs prayer, come on up afterwards and we can pray. And with that, let's close. Lord, we thank you and we love you for your goodness to, to us. And we just pray, Father, that you would bring these things into greater understanding in our lives. Help us to, to be mindful. As you were mindful of man, help us to be mindful of you. And help us to walk in, in your way and to experience your love and goodness. To be vessels able to pour out and bless others with it as well. And we just praise you. Thank you, Lord, for this time today. And we love you in Jesus' name.